Hello, and happy Mother's Day. Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message regarding Jesus teaching his disciples about service. You can follow along with the message in Matthew 18, 1 through 11, Mark 9, 33 through 50, and Luke 9, 46 through 50. You can also find our weekly message outline and other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. Welcome to Mother's Day. Hope that you will be sure that you contact your mother today and all those ladies that have had difficulty conceiving. We still appreciate you for helping to parent other children. So we've had mothers come in many different forms. Today we continue our series, The Life of Jesus. If you're new to Brookwood, you can buy one for $5. I urge you to jump in, catch up. It's based on a harmony of the Gospels, which is just a um, compilation of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, into one narrative. The point of this series has been for us to see who Jesus is as he's presented in God's word, not as we prefer, not as we project onto him. Is that happening to you? Is Jesus, are you seeing that Jesus is a little different than you expected? I need an answer. I'm gonna be here all day with y'all. Huh? Keep reading and rereading. It's not very long. You can make a lot of progress. I urge you to plan this summer to reread the entire entire book. Today's message is entitled Greatness. And the theme verse, which is on top of your message outline there, is if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. That's a fitting verse for Mother's Day, isn't it? My mother is 86 years old in, uh, unfortunately, rapidly failing health, but at the end of a, a long life. And I went into her hospital room this past week, and she, some of the, the first words out of her mouth was, I'd like to get up and serve you. That's the way my mother functioned, you know. You came in her house, she wanted to know, do you want tea? Can I get you some cake? Do you want some pie? Will you have a seat? Let me serve you. She wasn't even able to leave the bed in her disability. But her mind is still thinking, I want to make other people's lives better more comfortable. I think we'll see in this message that that's the definition of greatness in the eyes of God. During the 25-mile walk from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, the disciples had a prolonged and perhaps heated discussion. Now open your book, if you haven't already. We're on reading 103. And we begin, this, is, this first part is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum, 
when he was in the house, this is likely Peter's house that's in Capernaum and as I told you, became a church later. I mean, it it became a church many years later and it actually has a Catholic church hovering over the ruins of what was considered to be Peter's church or thought to be Peter's church. So when he was in the house, Jesus likely lived in that house as well as Peter and his family. He asked these disciples, what were you arguing about on the way? That's right, it's worth that. That is a laugh. They were very uncomfortable. But they were silent. Because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They were embarrassed, weren't they? You ever been asked a question, particularly by your mother, and you offer no response because everybody in the room knows the answer. Jesus had just spoken to them about his his soon-to-be betrayal, his death, his resurrection, which they didn't understand, but they were afraid to ask for an explanation, but they really were more focused on something else. They were more focused on continuing their argument about which one of them would be most important. When Jesus ascended to the throne, when he set up his kingdom, because they were still unaware his kingdom wouldn't be of this world. It's obvious they thought one of them would be the choice. Probably probably Peter, James, and John being the leading candidates. But some others thinking maybe me too. Particularly after Peter embarrasses himself later. They wanted to know who's going to rule beside you. And this argument continued all the way through the Last Supper. Remember that? Luke 22, verse 24. These men would be the leaders of the fledgling church after Jesus' departure. But here they are, and this is in the last year of Jesus' life, months before his final approach to Jerusalem, and they're motivated more by selfish ambition and ego, more by personal glory and prestige than they are spreading the gospel. Or even what will happen to this man that's leading them. Now Jesus was about to teach them and us the real meaning of greatness. True greatness first is characterized by humility. We like humility but we like it in others not in ourselves. Verse 35, sitting down, which is the way rabbis typically taught, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How do you act when someone treats you like a servant? See, that's your real attitude toward it. We like the idea of service, don't we? Until we're treated like a servant. For whoever is least among you all, this one is great. Jesus knew what they were arguing about and he was pointing out how wrong their thinking was. See, the focus of these men must, 
shouldn't be and must not be on themselves, but rather on the task that needed to be accomplished to spread the good news. And they would become great by ignoring themselves and striving to meet the physical, which opened the door to meeting the spiritual needs of others. That's what we do here. We don't do merely social service here. When we do ministry in the community, it's to open the door to the good news. There are lots of governmental agencies and county agencies that do social service for social service sake. We do social service for the good news sake. Because you know what? Having your front porch fixed is not as important as having your soul repaired. We do both, but one opens the door to the other. Pursuing affirmation from people forfeits the eternal reward from God. And that reward is for people who are willing to be last, not who don't have to be first, who don't need to be noticed. We continue in verse 36. Then he took a child. The Greek word is uh, pateon, and it means an infant or at, m- at most a toddler. So it's a very small child. But th- look at this. A toddler in particular won't just go to anyone. Is that true? Who has a toddler in their family? And you know, there's somebody in the family he doesn't like. (laughs) And it's embarrassing, isn't it? Here, let me see here. It's very telling who that child doesn't like. But notice this, Jesus knew this child and this child knew Jesus. Perhaps this is Peter's child. You see, Peter had a mother-in-law. He had a wife. He perhaps had children. If not, it may have been Peter's nephew or, you know, another relative. So this is a child that Jesus is close to. He's not just using this child as an object lesson. And then he had this child stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Children haven't accomplished anything. They haven't achieved any accolades. They don't have any power or honor or influence. Children particularly toddlers and infants, are weak, vulnerable, dependent, immature, not socially significant. When we welcome a child or anyone else because we think every person deserves dignity. Every person bears The image of God within. Did you know that? You have the image of God within you. You're small. He's big. But the image of God lives inside of you. And when we 
love and respect and recognize and dignify people because of the image within them, we are welcoming and honoring Jesus. And through Jesus, we're honoring God. Mothers do that well, don't they? They value their children. They deny themselves to provide for them. It's been fascinating to see my daughter raise a child. How unconcerned she is for herself. How focused she is on this infant that needs her all the time. And so mothers are good at meeting the needs of their children. The children are totally dependent. You know what I'm talking about? When you have a child, it's interesting how you just give of that child. They can scream in your ear for an hour. My grandson offered that to me a week or so ago. It wasn't, wasn't an hour, I'm exaggerating there. But the screaming is no exaggeration. But mothers and, and anybody that loves an infant doesn't expect notice or appreciation. You know what I'm talking about? You have a child like that. My daughter, I get pictures every day. I love those pictures. But it's always of him. He can't talk. He just kicks and waves his arms around. He does this crazy dance and smiles a little bit. It's amazing how, oh, oh he smiled and... Might have been gas, but who cares? It was. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's, it's you loving this person. And what's the reward? The reward is in the experience of nurturing and loving. Not in notice, not in acclaim. You don't get a headline. Oh, this mother loved her child today. That's what Jesus is talking about. Extending yourself without self-awareness. Not noticing what you're doing when you're giving. Whenever we serve or help someone in need because of the love and grace we've experienced from Christ, we're serving Christ and his Father. Christ's Spirit lives in every believer. So how we treat a believer... It's how we treat Jesus. You see that in marriage so much, you know. It's the, the, a marriage is the relationship between Christ and a believer. Very soon. And this will be examined at Judgment Day. Matthew 25, 34 through 46. So given to someone in need because of your faith, because of who you are. Not because who they are at all, because of who you are in Christ. Because of the, the way your life has been enriched by grace. So you give without even being aware of it. That's a gift to God. Do you serve? Do you give because of Christ? Right now, every one of you should have an image of where you're giving and where you're serving. If it's blank, 
that's something God's saying to you. We continue at Matthew 13 in the same, in the same reading, but it pulls from Matthew chapter 13. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted. Now, the word converted is strepho, and it means to twist, to turn quite around, or to reverse. So, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a synonym for the kingdom of God. This is Matthew writing. Matthew wrote to Jews. He didn't like writing the name God. Jews would avoid it. They would use a substitute. So he uses kingdom of heaven instead. The Jews would receive that better. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me point out, there's a little difference between repentance and conversion. Repentance is being sorry for sin and turning away from sin. Conversion is being turned away from sin, but turned to the Lord. We can only receive the grace of salvation as a small child. Expecting nothing, making no claims of worthiness or merit, expressing only need, displaying reliance, demonstrating dependence. Like a child. When I have my grandson, it's interesting, you know, I, I think I'm more observant, maybe because I've matured a bit and got a little healthier or whatever, or maybe it was just my station in life, I can observe more than I did when my children were infants. That's true, isn't it? And I realize the utter dependence of this little boy for everything. He has no ability to protect himself, even to ask for anything, to gain what he needs, zero. Nothing, no ability. And you know what? That's how we are when we receive the grace of God. No ability to gain any of it for ourselves. A child can't meet his own needs. A child has no resources even to stay alive. This humble submissiveness is greatness in God's eyes. We think we contribute something, don't we, to God? All received. That's what grace is. All received. Nothing deserved. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is sincere, not demanding or self-centered, receptive to whatever God offers, obedient to whatever he directs. We receive God's saving grace because of our need, not because of our merit. The proud religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, 
expected to receive the highest places in the kingdom because they achieved that on earth. They marched around for everybody to see. They wouldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. But these disciples, look at them, they're also self-centered, seeking acclaim, jealous for their position. This is striking what they point out next. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. What's John trying to do there? Trying to change the subject. Did you ever try to change the subject when your mother was on you? I know your mother. And she had this laser focus. And when she's coming in, you're trying to change the subject. Oh my, oh, 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 oh. That's what John's doing. He's trying to change the subject. And he's, he, want, he thought Jesus would be upset that somebody's out here casting out demons. Now the scripture doesn't record this incident. But it appears this man was actually successful in casting out demons. He was likely a true follower of Christ. But he wasn't, see, one of the inner circle. So these disciples wanted to stop him. What was their their motivation? Pride, but give me something clearer. They wanted the credit. They didn't want anybody competing with them, right? They didn't want anybody to get the credit that they deserved. They didn't say, he, he can't really do this well. They said, he's not one of us. He doesn't follow us. Tell him to stop. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can afterwards, soon afterwards, speak evil of me. For whoever is not for, not against us, is for us. It's interesting in it, Paul had the same attitude. You see it in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. There were people that were in ministry, really for pride's sake and ambition and competing. I mean, we see it in our culture. Trying to recruit people out of other churches and trying to get, you know, the ego. And Paul said, some people preach to make my chains more painful, let them preach. Even if they have a bad motivation, perhaps God will be honored and someone will be saved. Jesus cared that God's work was carried out, not who got the credit for it. Philippians 2, 3. But then he changes his tone. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Exalted. So which one are you? Now, you, now this is a moment of honesty, but you, you even have to have the spirit or someone sitting close to you help you see this. 
Do I exalt myself? Do I elevate myself? Or do I humble myself? Am I proud, self-seeking, or am I modest, self-effacing? Am I self-centered, or am I others-centered? You have your answer from God? I need some heads to nod. Did you ask God? This is the time you say, God, show me me, right? True greatness is concern for others. Verse 41, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you he will never lose his reward. When we offer kindness and generosity to other believers, other Christians, it says we receive an eternal reward. Okay, again, here's a question. For what will God reward me? You know what I'm saying, buddy. In other words, what am I doing that God will reward me for? Brandon, you know yours? Every one of us should have an idea not what God's reward will be, but what are we doing that pleases God in serving others? Then Jesus gave a stern warning to anyone who went the other way. You know, he's saying, okay, you give a cup of water, you help another Christian, but let me give you a warning for not only those who don't help, but those who hurt. Christians. Mark nine forty two. But whoever causes the downfall. Now, what's a, what's a more common word in the, in the other versions? We, yeah, whoever causes someone to stumble. And it's interesting, the Greek word is skandalizo, which is scandalize. And it means to entrap, to trip up, to cause to stumble, to entice to sin. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone. Now, literally, what the, the Greek says is the millstone of a donkey. So it's more descriptive. It's talking about a stone with a hole drilled in the middle of it and a pole, and they would connect a donkey to it, blindfold the donkey, and he'd walk round and around, you know, grinding out grain. So, but it, it is that you understood the image of the millstone. But it'd be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Do you think Christ gets upset if you're causing other Christians to stumble? Leading a Christian to sin, especially a little one, a young or just immature. Sometimes we're young when we're 80 years old because we haven't known Christ long. A young, a weak, an immature Christian is a serious offense according to Jesus. And he's clearly here saying it's better to die a horrible death by drowning than to cause another Christian to sin. Am I overstating that? If you care about someone, you will not entice or encourage that person to sin. Genuine love stimulates others to holiness. To help that person become the person 
God created them to be. See, if I love you, then I'm going to try to help you become the person God created you to be, even if you overshadow me. You see that? Genuine love does not compel other people into immorality, into disobedience. When Christians are dating and one is trying to draw another into sexual immorality, better that you have a millstone around your neck. Is that, did, I, did I misapply that? I'm going to tell you what, y'all, we need to wake up. We think we've got this little, little God up there saying, oh, please give me a break. You just do anything you want. Live however you want. God's not our grandfather. Well, I mean, he might be a grandfather like me. But God's not this little passive grandfather. There's some things he expects in his relationship with us. And we can cause others to sin by direct temptation, enticing somebody to disobey God's clear teaching. I mean, I've heard even people say, well, we, you know God will forgive you. That's not a love relationship that assumes forgiveness, is it? Any more than a spouse says, well, I'm just going to commit adultery because I know she'll forgive me. I know he'll forgive me. He said, that's abhorrent. Well, yes, the same though. It's the same. We can tempt people to sin indirectly by mistreating someone in a way that produces anger or fear or inferiority or insecurity in another person that then compels that person to try to compensate for the negative feelings we've caused in sinful, destructive ways. There's a verse in Ephesians 6.4 that speaks to parents. It says, don't provoke your children to anger. But you know what, parents? We provoke our children to anger when we're inattentive, when there's a lack of kindness or a lack of affection, when there's unforgiveness, when there's overbearing expectations, when there's criticism. I didn't say God, no godly correction. We must also avoid freedoms that confuse or discourage others in their practice of faith. In the scripture, it included eating ritually unclean food or meats that had been sacrificed to idols, which didn't bother mature believers because they said, well, the idols are nothing. So if the food's good, eat the food. Buy the meat in the market, even though it, you know, part of it's been offered to idols. But it... it it distressed young believers. You see that? The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, the whole chapter of, of Romans 14 tells us how to not cause others to stumble in our, in our freedoms. Romans 14, 21 on the screen. I just took one verse out of those two chapters, but read those chapters. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. So what, what would you apply that to today? We don't really have meat offered to idols, but what would you apply that to today? 
What is something you might think you have the freedom to do but can disturb somebody else's faith? Alcohol. I think that Christians today are too free with alcohol without being concerned of the impact on others. You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't believe the scripture forbids all alcohol, but you know what? It forbids it when you disturb, you're disturbing the faith of another. If they're trying to develop holiness and you're leading them into a place that's, that's distressing them, it's not right. What about the entertainment that you think that you might be able to watch without it affecting you spiritually or morally, but you're dragging somebody else into it and the images they're seeing are very damaging. You see, Christians, we have stepped into an era where we're not even asking these questions. Is this something I should be watching? Is this something I should be doing? Is that fair? We can cause the downfall in another Christian also when we just ignore or we fail to assist someone who we know is struggling with temptation. Well, I'm not gonna get in their business. You're called to get in their business. You see what I'm saying? That's like a mother saying, well, I, well, I know he's doing this and I know it's not right, but I'm not gonna say anything to him. Why? You care more about how you're received than you do that they're doing right by God. Matthew 18, 14, we continue. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now this word perish often means total destruction, but this isn't a reference to hell because we're talking about a believer, one of these little ones. See, I always read it in the context. In this context, perish doesn't mean be destroyed. It means damaged or harmed, and it's referring specifically to impairing the spiritual progress of a young believer. So what about you? Are you encouraging or discouraging the spiritual growth of young Christians? Including your own children. I, can I say something hard even though it's Mother's Day? You parents have got to let, stop letting your children call the shots on spiritual development. I'm gonna tell you this, my dear mother, she was half my size. There wasn't any question about whether I was going to church. Sunday school, church, training union, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I even had to go to Sunbeams. And I went to choir. Can I sing, David? That wouldn't be the popular opinion. I know I, I can crazy sing. I can crazy sing. But you see what I'm saying? Parents, you, you determine what they go to and where they go. And you check out what's taught, what the leader's doing, what the leader's like. And then you say, this isn't an option. You want me to wash your clothes? You want food on the table? Come on. That's stimulating growth. Why would you let a little one decide what he wants to do, where he wants to go, what he wants to eat, what he, how he wants. You wouldn't. Same thing. True greatness is commit, committed to righteousness. And righteousness just means rightness with God, being right with God. Mark 9, 43. 
And if your hand, it's connected with the same thought. If your hand causes your downfall, causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. Let me pick that up first, the, the hell. hell. Literally, the Greek there is Gehenna for hell. Gehenna is derived from the valley of Hinnom, which the valley is just south of the city of Jerusalem. Now, in the, in the past or in Old Testament period, idolaters had actually sacrificed children there. Sacrifices to Molech, passing them through the fire, the scripture says. It later, because it was such a defiled place, it later became the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And in this garbage dump, now think about it, remember, you don't have, they didn't have anybody picking up trash at the corner, so they were butchering animals, they, they, and all the refuse had to be taken somewhere. So all the corpses and everything, you know, the leftover, the rotted food, was all dumped in the Valley of Hinnom. That's why, and it was burned. It was constantly being burned. And so it became a vivid picture that Jesus uses for the place of final punishment. Worms and fire are images of what? You know, maggots are rotting, putrefying food. There's decay, there's stench, there's unending flames and destruction, there's noxious smoke, and all of it points to everlasting torment in hell. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm not gonna delay this, but this is an illustration of hell, not necessarily a literal description. You see what I'm saying? And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The unquenchable fire where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the mention of, of the, the hand, the foot, the eye emphasize that the battle against sin includes all aspects of a believer's life what they do with the hand, where they go with the feet, what they see with the eye. And we have to be willing to eliminate anything that is enticing us to sin by changing what we do, where we go, what we see. So we can repent and receive eternal life and avoid these agonies of hell. It's interesting, isn't it? Christ said it three different times, every time describing torment. But in its essence, hell is eternal separation from God, which is utter despair. Does it have the flame and the worms? I don't know. That isn't really the point. The point is that it's utter, eternal, permanent separation from God. Being filled with regret of a life mislived 
Of course, Jesus isn't advocating actual physical mutilation. You know that, right? Because the real source of sin is not the hand, the foot, the eye. What's the real source of sin? The heart. Mark 7, 20 and 21. So Jesus is calling for radical, severe action against anything that, that hinders our pursuit of holiness. Anything that becomes a barrier from us seeking righteousness and purity. It has to go. Ask God now, what do you need to eliminate? What needs to be cut off, gouged out, so you can pursue righteousness? And then, it, then there's an interesting f- phrase. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is one of those extremely difficult passages to understand. And there's many different interpretations. In one of the very early manuscripts, a copyist inserted the words, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt from Leviticus 2.13. And and the sacrifices, salt was added to the sacrifices. Some said it was a sign of the covenant of God. but, But I think it means, which when I say I think, what do you get to do? You can ignore it. I think it means that every true disciple is to be a sacrifice to God. So he's talked about punishment and now he's saying, but you too will be salted. Every sacrifice, including the sacrifice of your life. Because we're called to sacrifice our lives, Romans 12, 1. And since salt always accompanied temple sacrifices, the fire which symbolizes persecution, trials, and suffering, accompany a disciple's sacrifice of self. So your sacrifice will be salted, but what will salt your sacrifice is fire. In other words, the suffering you endure for Christ's sake, which makes your sacrifice even more pleasing to God because it refines your faith. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can it be made salty? And that's our Christ-likeness, is our saltiness, our righteousness. Have salt among yourselves. In other words, practice a holy life by eliminating temptations to sin. And be at peace with one another. See, he's brought it full circle. Now stop arguing and competing about who is greatest. Titus 2.12. Now here's a closing question. And you have to answer this one to God. Do you want to put away self-centered pride and live a humble life pursuing righteousness if you do some things gotta go don't they but if you do you will be great in God's eyes 
Our counselors will be here. If you want to talk to someone, you know, maybe something you're struggling with, you'd like someone to pray over it. Maybe there's something that needs to be out of your life and you can't find the strength to cut it off, eliminate it. Ask someone to pray for you. Some of you may be struggling physically and you'd like someone to anoint you with oil and pray for your healing. We, we do see healing. We don't see it every time. Maybe you just want someone to talk to you about how to follow Christ. They'll be here. Josh, you're going to be by yourself. Y'all come on up, counselors. Father God, we thank you for our mothers. Our human mothers who helped us physically and emotionally and even spiritually for many of us. But we thank you, Father, that you've been our father and our mother. Some of us maybe didn't have a mother. We didn't have a mother that followed you, but you parented us. So help us, Lord, to seek you today. In Christ's name, amen. Call up your mama today. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.